Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled, The Growl of the Strongman. We as humans have the uncanny ability to gain strength spiritually, and then in the hustle and bustle of life, to lose that once firm hold on spiritual truths. If you find yourself relinquishing your spiritual grip, may the old hymn's words ring true in your soul. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. The Growl of the Strongman is the name of this message. A little long for Eric's standards. But uh, I had another title I was pondering, and that is The Rule of the Strongman. I like the, I like the word growl. If you hang around me, you'll hear that word quite a bit. Uh, but The Rule of the, the Strongman is... Is a very enticing title for me as well, and you'll see why as we go through this. You see, there's a principle in Scripture that Jesus lays out, and it is what we could call the rule of the strong man. He's teaching us about how a house works. A house, when governed by a strong man, is protected as long as there is no other stronger that comes against that house. If you are going to overtake a house, you must bind the strength of that strong man. And if you have a stronger force and you can bind the strong man of a house, did you know that you can overtake that house? Well, guess who knows this principle? The devil. The devil knows this principle, the principle of the strong man or the rule of the strong man. And so therefore, when he knocks on the door of your home, who is the strong man in your house? Now, think about this. Most of us, and we just talk about us as men here for a second, we would say, hey, the devil's not going to push me around. Hey, I know what God wants to do in this life, and I'm going to say no. However, if you are the self-proclaimed strongman of your house, did you know that you will falter in the day of adversity? Did you know that your house will be overcome and will be plundered? The secret or the rule of the strongman is the strongest man will maintain the house. There is no stronger than King Jesus. When King Jesus is the strongman of your house, the enemy cannot plunder the goods of that house. When you are the strong man of your house, you are no longer the strong man of the house. The enemy is. Because he will overcome and he will exert his authority over your body or over your house. So let's begin this. The growl of the strong man. So the rule of the strong man. See, I got that in anyways uh, as my first subtitle. In Proverbs 11, it says, strong men retain riches. Well, it's because they're strong men, and they're also wise. You see, if you are entrusted with a jewel, then what should you do? You should keep that jewel. And a strong man is able to keep that which is entrusted to him. Now, I don't want you to begin to ponder about how strong you are. I want you to recognize something as we begin this. You know that many of us in here have been entrusted the riches of grace. We've been entrusted the riches of the wisdom of the kingdom of heaven. We've been entrusted with the understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the great merit of the cross. We've been entrusted with the understanding of how being in Christ truly gives us access unto all the wealth of heaven. Those are riches. And yet if you were to examine your life, how many of you have been plundered of those riches and you need to, be, to hear them all afresh? You just lost them somewhere in the busyness of your life some you know, event or episode took place and it distracted you, and the next time you turn around, your house was plundered. You see, most of us, when we think of riches, we think of money. When it comes to the kingdom of heaven, wisdom in Proverbs is actually clarified 
At the very top, it's greater than any riches you could ever receive in the wealth or the uh, gold coin department. Wisdom. Understanding of the manner in which God works. Understanding the truth of the kingdom of heaven. Understanding the person of Jesus Christ. When you have the riches of truth, what do you do with them? Do you retain your riches? And so that's part of what we're going to walk through here is the process that most of us, if we were to actually be honest, have been given gems in the kingdom of heaven at different times. And we can look back, a quick survey of our past, we're like, yeah, I was really strong then. What happened? How did you lose that strength? The specific thing I'm going to address today has to do with faith, where you saw something clearly. You knew it was God, and you stood up for it. And then what happened? Somehow, right now, you're not exactly so sure that it was God, and you've lost your position. You've lost your riches. So let's begin this. In Matthew 12, Jesus is talking, and he says, Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? Now, you could look at this from two different angles. One is, if someone is being controlled by the devil and evil powers... How do you come in and access that house? Well, first you must bind the strong man. You must bind the powers of darkness that are controlling that life, and then you can come in and spoil that house and, of course, establish a stronger rulership known as Jesus Christ in it. Or you can look at it the opposite way. This is just the rule of the strong man. If the enemy wants to overpower our life, then what he must do is the same thing. If you are governed by Jesus Christ, can the enemy bind the strong man known as Jesus Christ? He can't. And so as a result, the secret or the rule of the strong man is make sure the strong man is ruling your house. And guess what? The enemy cannot spoil the goods. Strong men retain their riches. Jesus Christ retains the riches. You are unable to. Therefore, you must learn how to lean on the strength of Jesus Christ. Here's Jesus talking again. This is a different gospel. Mark 3. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. And in Luke 11, when a strong man armed keeps his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he take from him, takes from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divides his spoils. Strongest man wins. And we already know who the strongest man is. Let's just make sure he's the one guarding our house. So here's the simple principle. You are not, that probably should be even bigger and more bold, you are not the strong man. Jesus is. There's part of me that wants to be the strong man or play act as the strong man. I want the men around me to hear, you know, it's like, yeah, and nothing's coming into this house, which is true. But where does my confidence lie? In my grit and my determination? Or is nothing coming into this house because I know my strong man cannot be bound? That's where my confidence lies. It lies in his strength, not in mine. The growl of the strong man. No miscarriage. I know that sounds like a strange growl for a strong man. However, what this means is when a, when a strong man is gaining his position in his house, he recognizes the simple principle that when God begins something, he brings it to completion. There's a rich, riches that have been entrusted to this man. And I'm going to liken this to faith. You have been given an assignment. You have been given a job. 
and the strong man growls, this job will be completed. Simple principle of how heaven works. Heaven does not start something and then miscarry it. Heaven does not start something and abort it. God is not into miscarriage and abortion. That isn't how he functions. It's very clear throughout Scripture. He starts and he brings to completion. That is fact in Scripture. I know our personal experience testifies to things very different than that. However, I'm telling you what the Bible says. The Bible makes it very clear. The strong man retains his riches. That which God is intending to do, he will perform. We oftentimes get involved in the process and through a series of self-events in there, create a breach in the whole process of what God is trying to accomplish. And we oftentimes lose the purposes of what God is doing. We miscarry all the time. The enemy desires miscarriage. God doesn't. The growl of the strong man, no miscarriage. I've had this exact quote come out of my life many, many, many times over the past, I don't know what it's been, six years I recognize in the first season of our ministry, we call it miscarriage, where God would plant something in our heart, a burden, and we would begin to do it, but then resistance would come. And what would happen? The whole thing would just fall apart. And we would say, well, you know, that's just how it works. God must have not have been in that. Or, yeah, you know, God must have had a different intent. And so we let it go. We didn't fight to keep it going. And you could say, well, what if God was against it? Well, that's a different point. When God establishes something, he intends to bring it to completion. And so one of the things that Leslie and I began to realize is when we looked and surveyed our entire history of ministry is almost everything categorically that we had begun had miscarried. And so like the whole history that we had, and I want to say almost everything, because there were certain things that had made it. Our marriage, for instance, it was still strong. So it wasn't that everything had gone south. It's just that a lot of it had. And we had accepted that. And then suddenly we rose up, I think it was six years ago, and we basically said, God does not miscarry. We will not relent from our position of faith. God is going to do this. Watch. And so you'll see a change of attitude within Eric and Leslie at that point to no longer accept breakdown as God but to recognize that the enemy is the one that wants to stop forward progression. So Charles Spurgeon, listen to this, and you're going to see the attitude that I'm talking about here in the growl of the strong man, because Jesus is our strong man, but guess who lives in us? Jesus. So as a result, his growl begins to come out. No miscarriage. This is brought to completion. He does not start something only to miscarry it. Now, you need to realize in the grand scape of how God works, we don't understand everything. So when something starts, our job is to believe our God will finish it. And sometimes he finishes it in ways that we didn't expect. So we cannot take our personal agenda into this message and say, well, you know what, I think that could be God, and then press it. God reveals his purposes and his nature in his word. We are safe when we're in agreement with his word. If he makes it clear in his word that he's going to bring something to completion, guess what? It's as good as done. If he says to Mary and Martha and Lazarus that Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, guess what? You can take it to the bank. Well, what if he dies? You can take it to the bank. This sickness will not end in death. But he's buried. There's a big stone in front of his grave. It's been four days, Eric. 
You can take it to the bank. Our God cannot lie. This sickness will not end in death. He is the resurrection and the life. Watch what our God will do. Our God, at every turn, when Jesus was down here on earth, at every turn, walked this out where he literally would say something and then seemingly fail in it. He's supposed to be the deliverer, the Messiah. He's the great rescuer, and he, he's hanging on a cross. He's a common criminal. He's thought to be. And he's not defending himself, which actually was a fulfillment of Scripture. But then he died? Yes, that's actually what it says in Isaiah 53. He died. However, that didn't appear right. The natural realm was boasting, was shouting in glee. We killed the Messiah. You have no more hope. And yet, think about the thief on the cross who looks over at Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What did that thief see? He saw a king. What do you see when you look at the cross? Do you see an eternal king who cannot lose, who will not be defeated? We hold our position, the growl of the strong man, no miscarriage. The enemy cannot stop what God is doing. Cannot. Fact. Punctuation at the end of it. Over and over. Exclamation mark, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. As many as you need to put in your soul. The enemy doesn't get the last statement. God always does. Roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth. You may have some Lazarus circumstances in your life right now. Certain circumstances where it's very easy in the natural realm to finally just yield and to relinquish your hold, your, your treasure that God has given you, your hope and your trust in God. And the enemy is saying, just turn it over. It belongs to me. I've proved to you, haven't I, in the natural, that God did not come through for you. Give up your riches. The strong man retains his riches. You were given a trust of faith. Walk in it. Could you imagine how hard that would be? Come on. Lazarus died, buddy. Stop telling me that this sickness isn't going to end in death. He's dead. Will you finally just give up this ridiculous faith that you have that Lazarus is going to live? Come on. Give it up. I will not give it up. Jesus spoke and he cannot lie. He promised that the sickness will not end in death. And I, for one, will not yield my position. Charles Spurgeon. Pray God to send a few men with what the Americans call grit in them. Men who, when they know a thing to be right, will not turn away or aside or stop. Men who will persevere all the more because there are difficulties to meet or foes to encounter. Who stand all the more true to their master because they are opposed. Who the more they are thrust into the fire, the hotter they become. Who just like the bow, the further the string is drawn, the more powerfully it sends forth its arrows. And so the more they are trodden upon, the more mighty they will become in the cause of truth against error. Okay, what is that? What is that that we're talking about? Well, we'll call it the growl of the strong man. It's the growl of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will get his ends. Do we believe it? Do we have that grit in our soul where we're able to keep that which God has entrusted to us? And just because the natural circumstances of our life may defy it, are we going to relinquish that which God has given us? Are we going to just turn it over? Has something stronger really come? Is it stronger than the truth of Scripture? Is it stronger than our Jesus? Is it stronger than the work of the cross? We say in our soul, and so we shout in our soul, it is not. 
Watch what my God will do. But it's been four days, Eric. His body stinketh. He's wrapped in grave cloths. Do you need any more evidence given to you that your God has failed you? My God cannot fail me. My God cannot lie. Watch what my God will do. It's the growl of the strong man. What the Americans know as grit. It's the grit of soul, not the grit of John Wayne. It's the grit of Jesus Christ. The position of faith. See, what we're talking about is a position. When you know what God is going to do and he's made it clear to you. In other words, we're going to use this term, proven it to you. There is a process of something being proven to the soul. That's how faith works. Faith is the concept of something being proven to your soul as evidence, being laid before the soul where you have come to a decisive point and you say, that's truth. So there has been something proven to you. Once something is proven to the soul by the Spirit of God, you must maintain this position of faith. And yet everything in all earth and hell is going to come against that position, which God promises will happen. I don't know if you guys know that, but in Scripture, God makes it very clear. You know your position that uh, you have in faith? That's going to be tested with winds and with rains. But if you are founded upon rock, if you are built upon truth, you will not be shaken in that day. And it will be proven that that rock beneath you is actually fact. This is just how it works. And I'll, I'll walk through the scriptures. It's called the trial of faith or the trial of fire. The position of faith, the riches of the strong man. The riches of the strong man I'm going to liken to the position of faith. In other words, what, are, what is your wealth? It's that you actually have evidence of the king of kings that is unseen. The world can't see it, but you have evidence, and it's been proven to your soul. That is riches, abundant. It is literally the only thing that pleases God. It is truly that which delights him, and that which is like a, a commodity on earth that is able to transact with heaven. The only thing that allows the substance and the glory of heaven to come to this earth is faith. And so when you have that, that's literally the transactable item to gain the benefit of all the work of the cross. It's a treasure because it's what unlocks his treasure. It is the greatest thing that we have to be able to work and interact with heaven with. And so the position of faith, the riches of the strong man. Reese Howells made a statement. Uh, If you read his book, Reese Howells' Intercessors, this really interesting statement that I'm sure any of you that have ever read the book, you sort of pause when you read it, and it causes this quizzical brow. Further prayer would have shown a lack of faith. There's these situations, Reese Howells' life is just otherworldly. It's hard to even know how to describe it. But he's praying, and he knows that God has said yes. In other words, something is proven to his soul. He's gained a position of faith. And what does he do? He stops praying. He rises up and says, it's done. If something's done, why would I need to pray anymore about it? And I remember reading that the first time. I was like, what? How does that work? That's what I'm going to talk about here. But how do you know? I'll just keep going. A peek inside the prayer closet of Elijah. Elijah, there's very few opportunities we get in the Bible to see inside a prayer closet. We get John 17, and then we get Elijah. We get to see a little of Jesus' prayer life. Not enough to totally satisfy us, but... We get a hint, a peek. The same with Elijah. Most of the time we know that they're praying, but we don't know how they pray. 
And so when you're trying to learn how to pray, it's just like, how does this work? How do you actually do it? I know I'm supposed to be doing it, but how does it work? Well, this is one great lesson in prayer. A peek inside the prayer closet of Elijah. Elijah prayed three and a half years before this, and the rains or the, the, the heavens shut up their rain. And literally, it has not rained in Israel for three and a half years. There's this big encounter between Ahab and Elijah. Ahab basically wants to kill Elijah. Ahab's, uh, Elijah's responsible for the lack of rain. And yet, he can't kill Elijah because he needs Elijah to pray that the rain will come back. But once that rain comes back, he can kill Elijah. So Ahab is somewhat dependent upon Elijah. So he finds Elijah. They run into each other after three and a half years. And Elijah commands that all Israel be brought to Mount Carmel. And that's where the the great contest between the prophets of Baal and Elijah take place, where Elijah calls down fire from heaven. And I'm not going to go into that story because this is immediately following it. After that testimony before all the nation of Israel where all the nation of Israel said surely the Lord is the God and they witnessed that Jehovah is God Almighty Baal is false Jehovah is true great scene Elijah makes a statement he says I hear the sound of an abundance of rain look up in the skies it's blue skies not even a cloud in the sky and yet he hears the sound of an abundance of rain what's he hearing is he actually hearing a a roar of thunder? No. He's hearing something spiritually. He knows what God is wanting to do. It's time to bring the rain back to Israel. And you can say, how did he know that? Spend time with God and you'll understand that. As you're spending time in the presence of God, there's things you just know. Yeah, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to talk to that person. Yeah, I'm supposed to go here. How do you explain how you know that? How do I know when my wife needs to get out of the house? How do I know when my wife needs me to do something romantic? Sort of a hard thing to articulate, isn't it? It's like, well, you just know I'm around her all the time. You can pick up on those things. It's the same with God. It's an intimate connection with the living God. The more time you spend with him, the more you begin to hear, he's bringing the rain back to Israel. However, the fact that Elijah heard it, some people will say there's no need for prayer. Elijah knows what God is wanting to do. Actually, this is when the prayer is necessary. You know what God is wanting to do, and the way that God brings it to this earth is in and through the prayer of the saints. So Elijah hears the sound of the abundance of rain, and what does he do? He goes to his prayer closet, which is on the top of Mount Carmel. So it says, Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. He gets into literally a prayer position to begin to beckon forth that which God has made clear to him. He's praying for rain. Now, didn't God give him the sound of an abundance of rain? Can't he just say, oh, it'll come? No, his responsibility is to pray that it comes. Now, watch closely. This is very interesting. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. Okay, so Elijah rises from his prayer position, turns to his servant and says, go and check to see if basically the rain has come. And his servant goes and checks, and guess what? Crystal clear blue skies. He comes back and says, Elijah, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. So the servant comes back and says, there's nothing. And Elijah prays, calls out, cries out, looks up and says, go check again. Servant comes back and says, there's nothing. Elijah prays, 
rises up, sends forth his servant, his servant comes back and says, there is nothing. Seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, behold, there arose a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, go up, say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. Now listen to this. You are praying for the coming of rain. You've prayed, you've asked, you've sent forth your servant. You're looking for evidence in the natural realm. What evidence do you get? A cloud the size of a man's hand? A teeny little diddly squat cloud, and yet Elijah has gained his position. He knows that the rain has come. Any more prayer from this point forward would be a lack of faith. He knows that God has given the symbol. The rain has come. What does Elijah say? Go up and say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. The rain's coming! Tell Ahab to get in his chariot now, otherwise there'll be so much rain he won't be able to get through. Hurry! The rain is coming! He heard the sound of an abundance of rain, which brought him to his prayer closet, to his knees. And then he prays, and 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 he prays. Until he sees the evidence in the natural realm. That which is in heaven has broken through. However, did you know that the position of faith is actually just as hard as hearing the sound and beginning to pray in the first place? Because it's usually not the full scope of what God is intending to do. It's the first symbol of what God is going to do. And he says, do you believe me? It's done. It's accomplished. Get off your knees. Go start shouting. The rain's coming. You know how hard it is to shout that the rain is coming when there's only a cloud the size of a man's fist in the sky? It takes just as much faith to rise up in your position and maintain it, even though it's just a little cloud. That's all you needed. That was the proof to your soul. Look at this. 1 Kings 18.45. This is the part that most of us miss because we cower in our position. And there was a great rain. Was Elijah correct? Absolutely. How, how did he get that out of a cloud the size of a man's fist that there was going to be rain? He knew what he was looking for. He needed the signal from heaven that the prayers had worked and that that which God had said was going to come was indeed coming. Now he began to act upon that fact. When do you kneel in faith and when do you rise in faith? Isn't that a fascinating question? When do you kneel to pray and when do you rise up and start shouting directives? We need to get going. The rain's coming. Hurry up. Get in the chariot. It's going to stop you otherwise. When do we know when to do either or? Two key misfires in the labor of faith. One is assuming prayer is unnecessary to bring the purchase of the cross to this earth. There is a whole bunch of Christians in this earth that actually don't see any reason why we need to pray. God's going to do what God's going to do anyways. I'm sure some of you have heard that. You've thought that too. It's like, why, why really do we pray? It's some spiritual calisthenic? God just has this it. He's going to do what he's going to do, but we then need to do our little exercises. And somehow that's good for us. That's actually not how it works for whatever reason, God includes us as a key component in this journey. And though we are nothing, and though we couldn't even see anything without God moving upon us, and it is God who's truly even giving us the prayers, who's allowing us to hear the sound of the abundance of rain, we are still an important part of this great adventure. We pray to see history altered, to see God's purposes unfolded. God has an inheritance. The cross has purchased something. 
But to get that purchase of the cross here to this earth, there is prayer necessary. Faith takes, takes its lasso or its grappling hook and reaches up into the heavens and then pulls and pulls and pulls and pulls until that which is lodged in heaven, purchased on the cross, is revealed here in this natural realm. So assuming prayer is unnecessary to bring the purchase of the cross to this earth is a key misfire of faith. That's not how faith works. We need to know when to pray. And as right now, we hear the sound of an abundance of rain. Well, that rain is coming in and through prayer. Elijah knew it. Number two is another key misfire of of faith. Assuming prayer is still needful when the position of faith is gained. In other words, we're afraid that if we don't keep praying, something's going to fall apart instead of standing in what God has given us and saying, no, it's done. It's accomplished. That's hard. Just as hard as the other. Breaking down the labor of faith into its parts. The hearing. Discerning God's agenda. If you don't hear correctly, you're not going to be on God's page. Okay, if Elijah doesn't hear that God is ready to bring rain back to Israel, well, then we've got a whole problem in this story. You need to hear correctly. Discerning God's agenda. There is a sound of an abundance of rain. And then there's the bending. Knowing that God's agenda can only be accomplished via prayer. And so what do we do? We bend. Not because it makes sense to the world around us. They don't understand bending. They don't understand prayer. They laugh at us for it. But we know what we're doing. We're transacting in the heavenly realms. For whatever reason, it's through the foolishness or seeming foolishness of praying that God brings the riches and the wealth of heaven to this earth. That he alters the hearts of kings. totally redirects the course of nations in and through prayers. That's what he does. So the bending, knowing that God's agenda can only be accomplished via prayer. Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees. The watching. Seeking the breakthrough in the natural realm. You're praying, you're praying, you're praying. If you're the, if you're the widow with the unjust judge, how long do you uh, disturb the judge? Well, until the judge changes his mind. That's the evidence in the natural realm that there's been a breakthrough. If you're the neighbor knocking and kneading bread, when do you know to stop knocking? When the door opens and the bread's in your hand. Obviously, you don't stop until your end is gained. It doesn't make any sense. Say, I knocked and I knocked. I did what Scripture said. Yeah, but you stopped knocking. You stopped begging. You stopped. You did go a long time, longer than anyone else in your generation, but you stopped short of that which God said he was going to do. You stopped believing and said to his servant go up now look toward the sea and he went up and looked and said there is nothing okay how many of you can just walk in the shoes of that scripture i mean this is our life as christians you've prayed you send forth your servant to say is it there it comes back there's nothing how do you handle that moment look what elijah does he bends again you see, Elijah knows. He heard the sound of an abundance of rain. He knows what God's wanting to do. That's bring uh, rain back to Israel. Should Elijah stop? Should Elijah go, well, maybe I missed that one. Elijah bends back down and prays. And how about the second time? There's nothing, sir. Master, I don't see anything. Should, I mean, this gets discouraging after the sixth time. How many of us have stopped short after the first, second, or third report from the servant? You know what? The number seven in Scripture is number of completion. Very rarely is it going to actually be seven times that this happens for us. Oftentimes it could be 70 times seven or 70 times 700. Some of the things that I've been praying for for 
good chunk of my life, I still don't have. However, guess what? If you asked me, I'm 100% confident it's coming. I am. I don't budge on that. It's God's word. Hey, he said it. He cannot lie. Why am I going to get cowardly about that just because the natural realm is saying the opposite? That's Christianity throughout the ages. I believe the word of God. The persistence. Wrestling until the breaking of day. Until that cloud comes. Until the evidence in this natural realm is shown, we cannot relent. And he said, go again seven times. The witness, the initial evidence that the prayer work is finished. Behold, there arose a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And it's just as hard to stop the praying as it might have been to continue in the praying. Like, that's all you're giving me, God? (laughs) Couldn't you bring, like, a crash of thunder? Why does it need to be a little cloud? Couldn't it be like a big, dark storm cloud? It's a little cloud the size of a man's fist. Enough. Rise up, go tell Ahab, the rain is coming. The position of faith. Utter confidence that the rain is back in Israel. You ask Elijah at this point in time, and you you stick the microphone in his face, are you saying that rain is back in Israel? That's what I'm saying. Uh, But, sir, we don't feel any raindrops. (laughs) Well, you better get indoors quick, because if you don't, you're going to be swallowed up. Because after a long drought, you're going to have some serious mud. Get into a safe place, and now. He knew rain was coming. Just because the rain isn't actually falling yet doesn't mean the rain isn't coming. The rain is coming, Israel. You, there is no need to stay bent on Carmel when you have the proving in your soul. You know that it is done. And he said, go up, say unto Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. The rain. The inevitable outcome of real working faith. The rain will come. I'm saying this as a guarantee, but it's not I want you to trust me. I want you to trust the word of God. God cannot lie. God is perfectly faithful. That's the nature of our God. The rain will come. If you can't, you know, put the microphone in my face and say, are you saying, Eric, that you believe Jesus is going to return and his feet are going to actually stand physically upon the Mount of Olives and it's going to divide in half? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Say, well, I don't feel like that could be true. I don't care what you feel. I'm telling you what the facts are. God is right and he cannot lie. It will happen. The rain will come. It's fact. We are Christians, which means we believe the record. We believe Jesus. We believe the word of God. If we don't have something to believe other than our feelings, we're going to be swept away in the times of winds and rains beating against our house. When the testing comes, we must be founded upon a rock, something that is immovable and unchanging, something trustworthy. I want to trust in God. I don't want to trust in your opinions, your philosophies, my emotions, my experience. I want to trust in the word of God. And there was a great rain. You know what the Bible says this line over in a thousand different ways. And God fulfilled all that he had promised. And yes, just like every other time, God was faithful. Do you see it? Do you see it all throughout the course of all history? All human history. And God was faithful. 
perfectly faithful. All that God promised the Israelites, he fulfilled. Over and over and over again. And there was a great rain. What's wrong with us that we begin to doubt the word of God and doubt the integrity of the nature of our God who has promised? The position of faith is always after the test of faith. Oh boy, would we love to have faith that didn't need to be tested. The testing of faith, dokimion, is the term. It's like the purifying of metals. So it's the concept of fire, which is why it's called also the, you know, the, the trial by fire. But there's a purification. If there's any mixture in your metals, in your soul, or in your faith, it needs to be purged. God needs to see if this is real. Is this really gold or is this, is this counterfeit? And so he brings dokimion. He brings a test against our soul to see if we will stand. He, he almost, in a sense, you could almost say it this way. He has a pace for when that cloud is going to appear in the sky. And it's the perfect time for when Elijah needs it to. Because Elijah needed six other times of hearing there was no cloud to prove the true faith of Elijah. We need to have that messenger come back and say, uh, but master, there's nothing in the sky. We're like, why do I need that? Because it's what's growing you in your faith. It's proving your faith. It's establishing your faith so that your faith is strong. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You know that God is helping us? He's helping us here. This is how faith works. The enemy has a deliberate design to challenge our faith. You know that he does? He has a calculated agenda to destroy our faith. So what does he do? He tries to use this natural realm to defy what we believe. And guess what God does? He uses what the enemy is attempting to, des- to destroy us and to harm our faith to purify our faith. No matter what the enemy brings against us, God will turn it to good. Everything. So every time we are facing this trial, which we know is going to come, because if we read the scriptures, that's just what has to come. We are going to have what we stand for defied by the natural realm. We will. And yet, will we still stand? Will we still believe it? Ultimately, the rain always comes. I can testify in my life, I've had so many rainstorms that have come and demonstrated that when I bent in faith and I kept persisting, sure enough, rain comes every single time. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so... After he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. You know what patiently endured means? After he had gone through the difficulty, the pressing, the trying, the purifying, what did he get? He obtained the promise. We want to obtain the promise without the fight. I don't want to pray. We also don't want to stand in our position of faith and grit our teeth, lock our jaw, and say, watch what my God will do. Though the world mock us with its evidence and lays before us all the legal documents that say, no, God has failed you. We lock our jaw and say, my God cannot fail me. Read the record. That's our position. But you know what? Oh, that's hard work. I just want the promise without the labor of soul. You can't get the promise without the labor of soul. You want the promise, you do it God's way. And God's prepared us. He says, look, the work of God is to believe. The work of God is to trust. 
The work of God is to know that I am who I say I am. And when I express it to you and I reveal it to you, your job is to say, that's right, that's true, and to remain in that. To not buckle under when it gets difficult, to persevere and to persist in your position. That's your job. You don't need to save the lost. You need to believe, and in and through you, I will do a saving work. But your job is to remain in your position of faith and to not buckle under when things go dark. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. Now, I think I go into it. I'm going to go into patience just real quick. Patience. Now, this isn't, I have so many teachings at Ellerslie about patience. There's two Greek words especially. This is one of them. But, hupamane. No, this is the other one that I don't say very often. Hupamane. See, I do hupameno is the other one we do. But hupamane. This is what it means. The brave, calm, and steadfast courage of the Christian soul. That in your soul, there's a calm and there's a courage. No matter what comes against your soul, you don't buckle. You don't fret. You don't frown. You stare back at it and say, is that the best you got? That's not what is naturally resident in our souls. Cowardice? We buckle our knees very quickly, not just in our spiritual matters, but in every matter. Difficulty comes, you get that report of what's happening with your finances or some bill in the mail, and what happens? You just begin to collapse. What is hoop? Let's see if I can get my word again. Hupamane. What is hupamane? You smile back at it. You say, watch what my God will do. There's a brave calm and a steadfast courage of the soul. It's unbreakable and immovable. It means to remain unmoved, to not recede or flee, to stand fast amidst the most severe misfortunes and trials, and to hold fast one's faith in Christ to the end. The growl of the strong man. I'm not going anywhere. And all the evidence has a voice, and it's clamoring outside your house saying, let us in. You don't deserve to keep that house. Your God has failed you. He's not going to rescue you. And the growl of the strong man, the truth of the word of God, Jesus Christ himself growls through you and you say, watch what my God will do. I am not turning over this house and you know you can't get it. You cannot defy the word of truth. You can't. The enemy will always be silenced on that point. You give him scripture, you give him the word of truth, he has no response to it. But in that hour of testing, you must be ready with the shield of that word with the sword of that word, to be able to bring a defense to the name and the nature of your God and you stand fast, fixed upon a confidence in him. Knowing this, the trying of your faith works patience. So how do you get that? How do you get that hupomene? Now I got the two mixed up. It's, It's one of the patients. How do you get it? How do you get that brave, calm, and steadfast courage? How do you get that immovability and that grit of soul that can stand in the midst of the darkest moments in your life? The worst information that could possibly be dealt out to your soul. How do you stand fast in those moments, unmoved and unbreakable? Well, you get that by having your faith tested. See, every single one of us wants that patience. We want that strength of soul, but we don't want the testing of our faith. However, the testing of our faith only makes us stronger for the next time we're tested. And then that makes us stronger for the next time we're tested. And then we keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger. 
We're growing up in the faith. We're becoming stronger in the faith. That's how it works. So that which we're complaining about is actually our ally. The testing of our faith is actually what strengthens us for our ongoing labors for Jesus Christ. So we smile and say, boy, this is going to make me strong. Oh, this is a doozy. Yeah, I'm going to get some serious strength out of this one. Because we know in all those testings, we are gaining strength in the kingdom of heaven. The position, you see it crossed out, the patience of faith. So this whole time I've been calling it the position of faith. I'd like us to look at it in a new angle, the patience of faith. That brave, steadfast courage and calm where we have a growl of a strong man within, that we're not going anywhere. I'm standing on the word of God here. I'm not budging from this position. The patience of faith. The indomitable, unbreakable immovability of faith. The doggedness of faith. The unrelenting nature of faith. My God said it. He cannot lie. He is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Fact in my soul. And we won't move. 1 Samuel 17, we're going to look very quickly at the life of David. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. Remember, there's Goliath out there. David comes to Saul and says, I'll fight him. Saul says, you can't do this. You're a little boy. For you are a youth, and he's a man of war from his youth. How many of you have heard this, too? You stand up to follow Jesus Christ, and what do you get? The Saul council, the flesh council. You can't do that. You're just a little boy. This guy's been a a warrior since his youth. You're just a youth. But David said to Saul, listen to this response. Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it, and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand, or the paw, of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. And Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head, and he also clothed him with a coat of mail. And David girded his sword upon his armor, and he he essayed to go. For he had not proved it. David was given the armor of Saul. But then he hesitated and said, I don't feel comfortable with this. Why? Because he had not proved it. He didn't have faith in that. Saul had faith in his armor. He had faith in his size. He had faith in human strength. David didn't. David had faith and confidence in something that was proven to him. And so he said, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. You see, his, the whole issue with Goliath was an issue of faith. And if David turned and stuck the confidences of his soul upon anything but the living God, he was in danger. But in this situation, he stripped off anything that would give him confidence outside of Jesus Christ or outside of the living God. And he said, that which is proven to me is what I'm going to lean on. And David put them off him. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And put them in a shepherd's bag and a pouch which he had and had a sling in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. David's position in the Valley of Elam. Remember we're talking about the position of faith. What position did David have? The test of faith. What was his test of faith? How was he prepared for this greater test? With a lion and a bear. You see, the trial of faith produced patience in him. So that he had a brave calm and a steadfast courage in the moment when everyone else was faltering. The darkest moment had come. For Israel. And guess who was ready? 
the man who was tested in his faith. What was his test? The lion and the bear. The position of faith. You see, because of the lion and the bear, he had a position of faith or a patience of faith. He had a position. The uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. You see, he had confidence now. You see, I can stand up against a lion and a bear, and guess what? God will protect me. And this Philistine is like them. Therefore, A plus B equals C. God will protect me. It was faith. What was proven to David? Whatsoever threatens his sheep is going down. That's one thing. So guess what? He is actually the anointed king of Israel. Who are his sheep? The nation of Israel. And this is threatening the nation of Israel. He's doing some quick logic on this. And he's saying, these are my people. I've been assigned to be their shepherd by God himself. It's my job to stand. This uncircumcised Philistine has no business doing it. Anything that threatens my sheep, it's been proven to my soul. It will go down. So it's not just my job to stand and die. It's my job to stand and demonstrate to all the host of Israel and the Philistines that there is a God in heaven. Watch what my God will do. And he was also had it proven to his soul that a shepherd's weaponry for protecting sheep is sufficient. And so what did he go out there with? With his shepherd's weaponry. You know how idiotic that would be in a time of battle to stand against Goliath who's armed. He has a shield, a sword. The sword is the size of David. And David has five smooth stones. If he is off by even one centimeter, you know what David did? It says that he hasted unto Goliath, which means he sprinted like a lion towards his prey. If David misses, what's he doing? He's in full motion sprint. Could you imagine how awkward that would be to run up to Goliath right here and after missing? And Goliath goes, not a good situation if you miss. But his confidence wasn't in his strength. His confidence wasn't even in his rocks. His confidence was in what was proven to him. And that is when he stands up to defend his sheep, God fights for him. Once the position is gained, it must be kept. You see, if David arrives at that battle, prepared by God before he even arrived at it, and then cowers, how bad of a moment in history is that? You see, David had something proven to him, and he needed to walk in it. It's called faith. When you have faith, you walk in your position. Otherwise, what happens? You lose your position. You allow the enemy to come in and steal the goods from your house. Oh, Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. A strong man retains his riches. Timothy was given something. Something was entrusted to him. The words of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The inheritance of the word of God and the inheritance of the cross. He has had something committed to him. He has a confidence in the word of God. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. O church of Jesus Christ, keep that which is committed to your trust. Joshua 23 For the Lord hath driven out from before you great nations and strong, but as for you, no man hath been able to stand before you unto this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand, for the Lord your God, he it is that fights for you, as he hath promised you. Take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves, that you love the Lord your God. Else, if you do in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these nations. Remember where they came from? They came from a position of unbelief for 40 years. Then Joshua rises up, leads them into the land of promise. This is Joshua talking. Take heed of yourselves, lest you go back. 
Can we go back? Isn't that a fascinating statement, a fascinating question? Can we go back? Can we lose the goods that we've been entrusted? Yes. Else, if you do in any wise go back and cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them and go in unto them, and they to you, know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you. But they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God hath given you. Obviously not a positive scripture. To go back means misery. We as Christians only go forward. When, you've been ha- when God has proven something to your soul, you are responsible to keep that trust, to walk in that position, to not relinquish that which you have received. Is it actually possible to go back? I know I just answered this question, but let me answer it biblically. 2 Peter 2, For it had been, had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog has turned to his own vomit again and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Yes, you can return. To backslide is the term in Scripture. To go back to an old behavior, an old manner, an old position of unbelief. Now, what are we talking about today? We're talking about a position of belief. We're talking about a position of faith. But to return to an old position of unbelief. You know those positions. They're more comfortable. You know that it's more comfortable to not believe? You see, there's no pressing against your soul when you don't hold in a position of faith. You just say, look, those things happen. Yeah, God must not have wanted that to happen. It's a lot easier to justify it. To relinquish what has been proven to your soul is easy. To keep that which is entrusted to you means war. Which do we naturally gravitate towards? To backslide. To go downhill is easier than going uphill. To backslide is natural for us as humans. But God grows us. He matures us. He presses us onward and upward always. So to give up a strength, to forsake a confidence in God, to squander the riches entrusted into your care. Listen to Hosea. My people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to me most high, none at all exalt him. Though they call to the most high, none at all exalt him. I will heal their backsliding. That's a nice encouraging statement to throw into this mix, isn't it? Instead of us all feeling bad about our backslide and all the riches that we've squandered, I will heal their backsliding. Does God need to do that? Our God loves us. For whatever strange reason, he loves us and has mercy. He desires us to be healed of our backslide. I will love them freely, for my anger is turned away from him. Moses in the impossible straits. Now, I, I weave this into a message I'm thinking about once every three to four months. So if you've heard this before, yeah, That's because I can't help but say it again. I absolutely love this little ditty. It was written in, uh, who's our guy? Um, Who's the the famous historian for the Jews? Josephus, Flavius Josephus. Uh, It was written as the, in the histories of the Jews, it actually parallels all with scripture. It's very fascinating. This isn't scripture. This is Jewish history. However, it is extremely fascinating to meditate upon just in light of this. So Moses and the people of Israel are backed up to the Red Sea. Listen to how this unfolds. Now when the Egyptians had overtaken the Hebrews, they prepared to fight them. 
And by their multitude, they drove them into a narrow place. For the number that pursued after them was 600 chariots with 50,000 horsemen and 200,000 footmen all armed. Okay, the Israelites are a whole bunch of men, women, children, donkeys, and goats. They have no military instruments for war. They are utterly vulnerable, backed up two precipices on either side and the Red Sea behind them. They have no means of escape. So it says, they also seized on the passages by which they imagined the Hebrews might fly, shutting them up between the inaccessible precipices and the sea. So let's assess their natural circumstances. They're not doing good. In the natural realm, the Hebrews are lost. The Hebrews are a dead bunch. You know that they have one option? They can humble themselves, cry out for mercy, and become slaves again to the Egyptians. Should they backslide, or should they hold their ground? They've gained a position. You know that Israel left Egypt? They did. They walked out in a confidence that God was leading them. Otherwise, they would have sat there in their houses in Egypt and say, I don't want to rile the Egyptians. I don't, if God's not for us, I'm not going to leave. They knew God was for them. Ten plagues proved it to their souls. They know that God is leading them onward. Yet, the first test of their faith that they have in this narrow precipice, they all fall apart. All but one. Moses. Watch. The Hebrews, if they should have thought of fighting, had no weapons. They expected a universal destruction unless they delivered themselves up to the Egyptians. So they laid the blame on Moses. How many of us do that? We lay the blame on God. It's like, God, look what you brought me into. I'm backed up. All the I believed you. I trusted you. I risked my life and skin for you, and now look what you've done to me. They laid the blame on Moses and forgot all the signs that had been wrought by God for the recovery of their freedom. And this so far that their incredulity prompted them to throw stones at the prophet while he encouraged them and promised them deliverance. What is the prophet doing the entire time? Just like the word of God. It is encouraging them and promising their deliverance. And what do we do? Throw stones at it. But Moses, though the multitude looked fiercely at him, did not, however, give over the care of them, but despised all dangers out of his trust in God. He said, this is one of my favorite quotes, It is no better than madness at this time to despair of the providence of God. The darkest moment imaginable, and what does he do? He says, watch what my God will do. It is no better than madness to stop believing now. Don't backslide from your position of faith. You've witnessed firsthand the power of God. He has proven himself to you. Rise up as men, and threedzomai, stand in the gap right now and watch what our God will do. Don't back down from your position. Don't relinquish the goods and the wealth of your house. God has given you something. A strong man retains his riches. And you have a position of faith. Don't lose it now. This is the continued story. This is Moses' prayer. So he's praying. And this is one impressive prayer. Thou art not ignorant, O Lord, that it is beyond human strength and human contrivance to avoid the difficulties we are now under. But it must be thy work altogether to procure deliverance to this army, which has left Egypt at thy appointment. We despair of any other assistance or contrivance and have recourse only to that hope we have in thee. And if there be any method that can promise us an escape by thy providence, we look up to thee for it. And let it come quickly and manifest thy power to us. And do thou raise up this people into good courage and hope of deliverance who are deeply sunk into a disconsolate state of mind. We are in a helpless place. I love this logic. We are in a helpless place. 
but still it is a place that thou possesses. Still the sea is thine. The mountains also that enclose us are thine, so that these mountains will open themselves if thou commands them. And the sea also, if thou commands it, will become dry land, which it did. Nay, we might escape by a flight through the air if thou should determine we should have that way of salvation. You know, it could have been any of those options. Could have been even a third option. It could have opened up a hole in the ground and brought them, you know, as some type of miners underneath the Red Sea. God's business. But could you imagine if the story throughout history was that God picked up a nation of millions of people and literally flew them out? He could have just as easily as parting Red Seas and walking across on dry land. That's just as impossible. How about making a, a, a cavern through a mountain for them to walk through? That's yeah, equally impossible. It's God's business. We are believers, not in our own ability to get ourselves out of situations. Our own ability to solve the impossible. His ability. And he loves the impossible straits. Summary thus far. If you have already proved God on a point, if you have already been proven by God on a point, then confidently, unreservedly, unabashedly, boldly stand on that point. The garrison. Garrison is a military term. When territory is gained, a regiment is always left behind to ensure the newly acquired property. So you come into a, a town, you take the town, and what do you do? You don't just leave the town. You leave a regiment behind as a protection. It's called a garrison, so that the enemy cannot come back and regain that which was freshly gained by you. And this is a spiritual principle. When you gain strength from heaven, when you gain a position of trust in God, when you gain a faith, what should you do? Put up a garrison. Monitor it. Keep it. Don't take it lightly that you've been given the riches of heaven. See, most of us don't know the value of faith. We think that we came up with faith. We think that we derived a confidence in God instead of the fact that God entrusted us with faith. It is a gift. It is a gift of grace that has been given to our souls. Then we must protect it. We must steward it. We have faith. Let's use it. So how do you leave behind a garrison? You remember your position. You remember. Remembering in the Christian life is one of the most important things. We had a, a, a meeting with some men this morning. One of the, the men was saying that he told his family, let's go around the table, and I want you to share all the supernatural things that have happened uh, over in the past years. I need to hear them right now. And on, I think it was Saturday, Leslie spent the morning writing down the supernatural things that had happened in our adoption because it's under siege right now. And to remember, to remember the position we have and to not relent from that position. You remember your position. You remember the lion and the bear. Yeah, wait a minute here. The lion went down. The bear went down. Yeah, this is a giant. Same thing, though. The same God will be faithful now. You remember what is gained, and you don't go back to a position of unbelief in the matter. Ever. Ever. You never return to the vomit. Unbelief is vomit. Do not return to that. Territory gained is territory gained. Keep that which is committed to thy trust. So I'm going to go as we're closing today. I'm going to go through just the actions of faith. So you can test to see if this is your behavior. Are you behaving in faith right now? In a confidence that your God is faithful? You know what it means to be faithful? That means he's a worthy depository for our faith. When we put our confidence in him, what will he be? faithful. He is perfectly able to match all our expectations when they are aligned with the word of God. We say, God says he's this. Well, I believe it. He'll be faithful. A hundred percent 
faithful. Never in all of universal history has he not been perfectly, 100% faithful. So the actions of faith. How does faith act during testing? Well, it prays. If you find yourself abandoning prayer in a time of testing, I just want you to know that's not faith. You see, when the testing is coming, when you hear the sound of an abundance of rain, and you bend your knees, and then you say, is the rain coming? And the servant comes back and says, there's nothing, master. How do you handle that? That's the test of faith right there. You know what God is wanting to do, but, oh, I thought he was going to do it. How come it's not happening? You're being tested right now. Well, what do you do? You continue praying. What else do you do? You plead. You cry out. You sweat. You yearn. You wrestle, refusing to let go. You knock. You persist. And you embrace the challenge. These are all attributes of faith. You smile at the danger. You obey. You leap. You laugh. I know those things all don't coordinate. But you know what you're thinking? My God's going to come through. And I know he's testing me right now, which means I'm getting stronger. So therefore, there's a hope that is set before me. There's a joy that is set before me that even though this is difficult, I'm getting stronger through it. And so you keep crying out. You keep sweating. You keep going through. But there's a joy that is set before you. You're getting stronger. The purposes of God are being accomplished. I know this is good. Though the enemy is hounding my soul, though he's beckoning me to give up my position and relinquish my goods, I refuse to relinquish the confidence I have in the wealth of Scripture. I know it's true. And as a result, you can leap, you can laugh in the midst of the sweat and the tears. I know they sound like they are contradictory. Live out the Christian life the way the Christian life is intended to be lived out, and you'll realize, as strange as it is, leaping and laughing and crying and sweating blood all go together. And they can be at the start of one sentence and the end of it. It's amazing how they intertwine because one has an eye set on Jesus Christ and the Eternals and the other one is dealing with very real difficulties down here, which is where sweat and blood come in. It's hard work. And so there's reason why there's groaning and crying out. But there's also reason why you can laugh and you can leap in the midst of it. How does faith act in the position? See, that's the trying. That's the testing. But when it gains its position and it no longer has to bend, it doesn't have to bend and put its face between its knees, it rises up and says, God has done it. The rain is coming. Well, you grit your spiritual teeth. You resolve to not heed doubt. You stand firm and immovable. You shrug off the questions and concerns. You don't give voice to them. You don't heed them. When the enemy comes up and says, I have some legal documents I want you to review that are stating that your position of faith and your belief in God is untenable, You light a match and burn them. You don't read them. You don't pay heed to them for a second. My God has spoken. I only listen to him. Thank you. Okay. You also smirk the 12 and a half foot giant and know that his end is at hand. And of course, you leap and you laugh. You see, you do the leaping and the laughing all the time. In the test and in the position. You're always leaping and laughing. You're a Christian. Get used to it. In heaven, we're going to be doing a a lot of leaping and laughing. We're training for it right now. In the darkest moments, it might seem like the hardest time to leap and laugh, but I have learned the great elixir of the difficult moments. Leap. Obey scripture. Leap. You know, when you leap, it opens up a channel within your soul for the geyser of joy to come forth. And in the darkest moments, I can personally testify. I've gone through some very, very difficult things in my life. And I have had joy in the midst of them. I know it doesn't make any sense, but I... Believed the word of God on that point, and I agreed, and I leapt. And guess what? Joy followed. It didn't start. I wasn't, because I, a lot of us wait for joy before we leap. Well, if I felt like leaping, then I'd leap. 
No, you obey and you leap and then comes the joy. We obey scripture, not because it feels good, but because it's truth and we believe it over the natural obstacles. All right, this is the final meditation. Remember the armor of God, the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, the boots. This is Jesus. Jesus encompassing us. But this is battle armor, which means we are going to war. When you take a position of faith, you are going to war. Why does he give us armor? Why can't he just give us a dress? That'd be awkward for some of us men, but that's like Hebrew garb. Why can't he just give us clothing? Instead, he gives us armor because we are engaged in a battle. Yes, it is easier to not believe. It's not easier in the end, and it's not easier for life's challenges, but it is easier in a certain sense because if you don't believe, you don't get the battle. You don't get the war coming straight at your doorstep. But you stand up to believe the scriptures, and it seems like all hell breaks loose. I know that that's what it looks like, and it might be happening, true. But when all hell breaks loose against your life, do you know that you're getting stronger in every moment that you stand? Every moment is a strengthening opportunity for you. There's no downside, so that's why we can leap and laugh in the midst of it. It's like, boy, this is a great opportunity. I was wondering how I was going to grow up in the faith. Yeah, belief, and you'll start growing up in that belief. So the helmet, the breastplate, the belt, the boots... The sword, the shield, listen to this one. And there is no provision for the back. There's no backslide. There's no retreat. Onward, march. You've been given an assignment. Onward, march. You've been given a position of faith. Onward, march. Keep that position. The word of God did not get cloudy between the last time you believed it and all the events that have happened since. The word of God didn't get confused. You did. You gave up a position. Take it back. God shows us grace even with messages like this. There's a certain rebuke in a message like this. And by the way, in my meditation upon this message, I realized that there were certain things that I had lost a firm grip on. And usually you can, when, I'm, when I have a firm grip on something, you can even hear it in my tone of voice. I feel strongly about something and I'm adamant on it. And there's certain things that I recognize. It's like I've gotten a little wishy-washy on them. And maybe I could justify that, well, they're not big things. They're sort of side things. I had a position with that. I had a confidence in that, and I've lost it. No. Lord Jesus, forgive me for that, for not guarding that which you've committed to my trust. This is treasure, and I want us to begin to treat it like treasure. I want us to remember what God has done. One of these times, we need to get together and just remember the mighty movements of grace in each of our lives. We need a service that just amplifies the goodness and the power of God in and amidst the church. You know, churches all over this country are having what's called doubt nights so that they can all commiserate in their doubt and their disillusionment because they can understand each other. We don't have doubt night as the church. Faith night, faith week, could you imagine? All we do is share testimonies of God's power and grace. Yeah, we need more of that. That's why we read biographies. Christian biographies are an infusion of faith because we watch someone else walking it out and we see what God did in response. I can personally testify that our God is worthy of our trust. I can personally testify that when you stand upon the word of God and the winds and the rains come, your house will not be moved. It will not be shaken. I know it. But my faith, yeah, you can borrow it for a little bit, but you need to have your own. You need to allow that lion and that bear to test you to prepare you for the greater things.
to build you in patience. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludi, pastor at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.